state-sponsored programming. I'm Sophie. And I'm Will. And today we have a special guest, our good friend Charles Adams. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about Islam, especially in modern politics. So in the news a lot today, we see a lot about Islam and political correctness in relation to others' religions. So something that we want to talk about is not only a little bit behind the history of modern-day Islam, but also Islam in modern politics. Good? Absolutely. Okay. So, to give a little bit of background, in 1979, the Iranian Revolution happened, which basically overthrew the oppressive monarch, the Shah, and replaced him with the progressive Islamic Republic, which is a theocracy. A theocracy means that religion and government are at one, and the clergy has equal political power as elected political leaders. This is important because that theocracy of radical Islam which then took over Iran, has spread into the rest of the Middle East, and it has impacted us across the Atlantic and throughout Europe. So, something we want to talk a little bit about today is when people feel that they cannot criticize anything, be it a religion, be it a person, bad things usually happen. That person usually takes advantage of their political prowess because they are not allowed to be criticized. And unfortunately, even though not all Muslims are radical, not all Muslims consider themselves anti-American, that is a lot of the sentiment we see today and we see in the news. So, Charlie, what generally are your opinions on political correctness in modern politics, especially regarding Islam? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to understand, and just backtracking a little bit, that we are observing the Islamic world generally in a state of disarray, in division. Uh, we can see this through international conflicts. We can see this through the Israel-Palestinian Israel conflict, excuse me, um, the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We can see this through Western intervention and also the resulting refugee crisis from ISIS. Um, and with that being said, you know, we have to look at the fundamentalist roots that are changing in Islam. This is kind of a period of radical change that has been observed, and they're kind of going through the motions with it right now. I think that's something that's uh, important to keep in mind going forward. And as, as far as political correctness can go, I think that there is a certain regard that we have to upkeep for the protection of people and how rhetoric and divisive language can kind of enable violence, can enable misunderstanding. But at the same time, we have to understand that we, we need to be critical of these, of these things. You know, religion is something that is not static, and it has constantly been undergoing changes, especially in Islam. And um, at this point, it's just about taking those fundamentalist roots and applying them to um, how we can adapt that to modern day. And also being educated on Islam itself. You know, it's all well and good for certain people to say, I don't believe in this, when you have no understanding of it. You know, it's very hard to critique something that you don't understand. But church and state is also an issue that's been portrayed a lot in the media. We talk about the Islamic theocracy. Like I said, radical Islam is the governing kind of faction of Islam in Iran right now. So church and state is a big issue. So William, I know that earlier on State Sponsor Programming, we had an episode talking about religion during which we talked about the Catholic foundations of a lot of the laws in this country. So generally, just quickly, you want to share a little bit about your opinions on the separation of church and state? Generally, I just kind of think that it's important, especially when we have a more pluralist society in the United States, for people just to kind of respect each other's religious beliefs and understand the, the role that the government has. So I think one role the government has is protecting free speech. 
people are allowed to say inflammatory things about Christianity. As many people know, I'm a Christian, and you have the freedom to say that. It's the same with Judaism, could be Buddhism, and the same thing as well with Islam. There are multiple points about Islam that people will criticize regarding the Prophet Muhammad, regarding a lot of different things. And people should have that freedom to say that in terms of when we talk about the Catholic foundations of United States law, I think it's generally what you're referring to a little bit is I think of, of principles. You know, I think, and this is at least my opinion, you know, with, with Christianity, there's kind of this idea of equality before God. And that kind of applies to the government of the United States a little bit, that people, regardless of who they are, you know, regardless of race, religion, um, etc., they should be regarded as equal under the law. So just starting off, I just want to say um, that I am not a politically correct person. So I don't necessarily hold back my sentiments, you know, for the sake of someone's emotion. And I'm sure neither of you kind of go with that, if you know what I'm saying. But as far as that goes, I think you have to distinguish from political rhetoric that can be harmful and political correctness and comments that can potentially be interpreted as disrespectful. And also just general respect. Yeah, of course. You know? um, and I think, especially with political rhetoric that can be harmful, we've observed this more acutely in the past couple of years than we have you know, in, in decades. I think, and personally, leaders to me, such as Donald Trump, are, are kind of demagogue-like. They appeal to fears and securities and an allegiance to kind of identity politics. So going off of that, how is Islamophobia, if you will, weaponized by current political leaders, Donald Trump and or others? Well, yeah, as, as, I, as I said, it's, it's an appeal to fear. It's an appeal to identity politics. And I think what we're observing right now is the world, and um, especially the Islamic powers, in a state of disarray. You know, there's been international issues that cause contention, that cause disagreements, and cause a lack of cooperation. And then, you know, in the eyes of the public, we see that as uncertainty. We see that as insecurity. And then, um, you know, leaders such as Donald Trump, even, you know, Marie Le Pen, who was the French presidential candidate, uh, of, you know, a couple of years ago, they take these, these sentiments of fear that people have, and they amplify them. And they channel them into, you know, a way that they can, you know, a, a vote, you know, anything like that. Um, it, it's it's kind of easy to observe these changes in these sentiments. With all due respect, though, you've said a couple of times that the Islamic world is in disarray, and I'm going to have to disagree with that. After the Iranian Revolution of 1979, before that Iranian Revolution, the Islamic world was in disarray. But since then, since their theocracy has been established, it's actually been quite strong. And it's only getting stronger the longer it progresses, the more they figure it out. Just because one is engaging in proxy wars or just because there is regional conflicts does not necessarily mean that the government itself is in unstable or that they don't know what they're doing or that it's, it is still developing, everything's still developing, the United States is still developing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's fragmented or unstable or fragile. No, of course not. And, and, I, and I'm not implying that. However, we, you can observe the Middle East as you can observe other areas of the world. And you can look at them and say they are not ready to receive diplomatic exchange at the same levels that other nations may be on. They don't necessarily have the governmental resources, the national resources to deal with the conflicts that are occurring there. And then also, I said the Islamic world. And the Islamic world encapsulates many countries stretched across the world. This includes, I mean, African nations, along with Middle Eastern nations. This includes Asian nations. I mean, this is, we're talking about a wide-reaching group of, of individuals here. It really encapsulates, and, and I have, um, the population actually is, is about 1,570,000,000 Muslims. And so with that being said, we cannot generalize this to just the Middle East. So I understand what you're saying. But also at the same point, at the, you know, at the same time, they are fragmented. We, we, we are observing the, the direct result of Western intervention, of many other issues, and um, I think you can observe this with especially the um, 
the refugee crisis that resulted from ISIS and um, security threats from inside the Middle East. This is something that we can observe and that we can actually quantify. And we can say that, you know, right now, these nations, whether it may be, you know, the Islamic world as a whole or just the Middle East, they are in a state of disarray to some extent, for, to what I believe. And you brought up the refugee crisis, which is great. So you have a lot of Middle Eastern Muslims that are moving into the European Union to escape a lot of this, the human rights abuses, a lot of the conflicts that are going on there, which is in turn causing problems for the European Union. So how are they kind of dealing with that? How do they respond to that in their media and in their government? How do we respond to that a little bit even? Yeah, so I think the response generally has been mixed. I think we like to perpetuate that, you know, I don't want to say the liberal media, but I think certain media sources kind of exaggerate the extent to which groups may be, you know, treated, you know, or however you want to, um, however you want to phrase it. Um, but I do think the reaction to refugees and the international crises that we've seen has been mixed. Um, I think that it's been that with po- both positive and negative, just like everything. But as far as handling this, they've taken in a, a sound number of refugees for what their countries can manage. And once again, they can quantify, you know, how many people they believe they can take in, you know, under their own economy, you know, wh- you know, whatever it may be. But as far as the protections for um, the Muslims who are moving to the European Union goes, they have not been very careful going over what you know everything that would be encapsulated you know with this kind of exchange. Yeah. Can you ex- can you kind of expound on that? Like, what have they not been careful of? Yeah. Who yeah. Has so, not been um, so I think, uh, and as I said earlier, political rhetoric comes into play because that's kind of how people interpret you know these changes. Is is the media? You know, their politicians, whatever it may be, and. A new study by the European Interfaith Council found that misleading and often false rhetoric can be seen thriving in Europe, particularly in 27 acutely observed nations. I don't have a list of those, but there are 27 of them, and once again, that's by the European Interfaith Council. And with that, the member states of the Organization for Cooperation and Security in Europe, they did not collect any information on hate crimes against Muslims, at least since 2016. Um, and they do, not look at, they do look at areas such as employment, school curriculum, and cyberspace, there are a lot of over, overlooked um, areas of Muslim life, and um, even then they've observed a steady decline in Muslim representation in these respective areas. But with that being said, we can't. It, 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 it's very hard to quantify the extent to which violence and hate crimes are used, you know, against Muslim refugees or even Muslim Europeans. It, it, it's it's a hard thing to quantify. And once we have the support and the backing of you know governmental agencies, you know, to help get an accurate get an accurate excuse me an accurate measurement. Um, of what this looks like and how, you know, to what extent it's been, you know, it's been in effect, then we can actually start to work on the changes. If that makes sense. So just a question for you, as someone who is a little bit more liberal, you talked about the whole refugee crisis. And obviously, you know, I think a lot of people in the United States and other European countries, they want, they obviously want to help these refugees, but then we kind of run into the problem a little bit of that there are members of Middle Eastern population that do have radical beliefs. And on one point, we want to help, but at the other point, we we don't want, in a sense, these radical beliefs spreading. And we want people uh, coming in to kind of conform to, like, what we would consider maybe Western values, just, like, respecting other people's religious beliefs, etc. So how do you think is the best way to help alleviate the problems of this whole refugee crisis while at the same time, you know, trying to prevent the effects of radical Islam? Um, just a, a follow-up question. When you say deal with the effects of the refugee crisis, do you mean specifically in, in the context of that, like their involvement in Europe, or do you mean solving the, the source of the crisis? So, then... uh, so with the effects, it's more so that we have a case where 
There are people from war-torn countries that are trying to escape, and these are refugees that we want to help them. But at the same time, there are many members of these Middle Eastern countries, these war-torn countries, that have radical beliefs. And so we want to help We want to help them out, but we obviously don't want certain radical beliefs spreading, or we don't want... We've seen how um, radical Islam can work in these Middle Eastern countries as opposed to, like, you know, laws that are supported, sentiments had, etc., so my just general question is, so how do we have the balance of we obviously want people coming in that are that are to conform to like what we consider, you know, American democratic values, while at the same time trying to help out the people from these war-torn countries? Does that make, does that make sense? Or? When you say radical Islam, some of the beliefs they hold are detrimental to other societies. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and I, I'm someone that's willing to admit that, you know, there is a, a population of of the Muslim, you know, global population that definitely is radical. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not definitely not undermining that ability. Actually, I have a figure in front of me. As I mentioned earlier, I used this number earlier. Um, there are 1,570,000,000 Muslims currently in the world. And that's a rough, rough estimate. And then another estimate they conducted was the, for the radical Muslim population. And that's around 35,000. And then within that group, Al-Qaeda is estimated to be only at around 10,000. So as, as, as far as the radicalized population goes, in the context of what the global Muslim population looks like, it's pretty small. We know that to be true. We know that, you know, most Muslims, in fact, more than 99% of them are, you know, completely peaceful. You know, they want to escape, you know, whatever persecution it may be, you know, uh, conflict, whatever it may be. Um, you know, we know that to be true. However, you know, there is the problem of confronting, you know, these radical groups, you know, that may possibly gain entry into Europe, which again is, you know, a huge security threat. So, and that, that can be handled on a national basis. You know, I'm not here proposing anything. The, the solution to that would be far too complex to even cover, you know, in, in our even. I mean, you know, it, it's so complex and it involves the movement of millions of people. You know, nothing, nothing, you know, on this scale is going to be um, as easy as just, you know, discussing it for a couple minutes. You know, it, it's very complex, but I think I think where it starts is we have to gain an understanding of what the radical population is as opposed to generalizing that to the overall population of Muslims or those that may be moving into Europe. And where did you get your figures from? This figure? Yes. Um, so um, the worldwide Muslim population, that was from Wikipedia, and then the radical Muslim population was from the United Nations. But then again, that, that's a rough estimate. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying those are absolutely true, but something around, you know, I, I think the context still holds up, even if those, you know, were false. So when you say, um, like, r radical, um, is so how are you defining that, if that makes sense? Yeah, so the radical population, and then again, this is quantified in the context of national security and international security. So these are people that have, they know have been a part of terrorist organizations, sleeper cells in other nations, and just other groups that encourage violence or encourage control exercise through militaristic means. I mean, we can observe this throughout the... The Middle East. But then again, that's just an estimate, an estimate of who could potentially commit violence. So and once again, that's not an absolute number that has a lot of different ways it can go. But as far you know, as you were saying earlier, William, you were saying um, that some of these people hold sentiments or principles that can be detrimental to European society, democratic society, you know, American, whatever it may be. And while I do agree, and I, I do agree with you to some extent, you know, that these people may have sentiments and principles which may be harmful, we also have to uphold the ability for people to incorporate, you know, their religious background, you know, their religious beliefs into their principles and into their philosophies. I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a way to screen people, you know, to have them, you know, monitored for their principles and their sentiments, their beliefs. I think, but I think another problem that we have too is how we're defining radicalism, because according to the Pew Research Center, for example, over 80% 
of Muslims in Egypt believe that apostasy or leaving the faith, they, these people should be killed. And in other um, majority Muslim countries, specifically in the Middle East, there are similar figures of that. So how do we, I'm not necessarily saying, obviously, a very, very, very slim uh, minority. You said 36,000 people are going to commit these sort of violent acts. But, w- but what do we have when we have, in, in some cases, you know, populations of people that, while, although they may not necessarily be acting on these beliefs, they have these sort of radical beliefs? And some radical beliefs don't necessarily just include terrorism. There are what are called grooming gangs in England. There's sex trafficking, genital mutilation. All There are a lot of other principles that go into disruptive behavior to Western society. And people things that people just think are human rights abuses. And they kind of are, but don't want to call it out because they're committed by Muslims. So where does that kind of fit in? That political correctness of saying, I know that there's this certain pocket of Muslims in this certain nation that are doing bad things, but I'm not going to do anything about it because that could be considered racist. I mean, sure. I, I think, I think that takes, that takes precedent to some extent, but at the same time, just specifically when you mentioned the grooming gangs and, and kind of like this underground kind of syndicate that, you know, you, we may be observing in England, you know, other countries as well. But with that being said, I don't think it may all be a matter of political correctness. I think that this may be just a case of People not wanting to falsely identify, you know, the practices of, you know, a certain group and have them encapsulated within Muslims or, you know, or refugees or, you know, whatever it may be. I I, I think, I don't think people want to necessarily draw that line and make that, for lack of a better word, that accusation, because I, I think that's kind of, that may not be wholly included within Islam. I don't think it fully represents Islam. And I don't think those people do either. You know, I, I don't think that goes hand in hand. I don't think they go hand in hand with each other. So I don't. You know, I would imagine that people wouldn't want to falsely identify that out of fear of just not wanting to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you don't want to misidentify, but suppose that Absolutely. it had been correctly identified. Like, this is observable behavior that we have realized is growing on in this Muslim community. It is a radical belief held by some Muslims that do live in Europe. Do you know what I mean? So Absolutely, but I think, but I think, but, but, I, and I'm not sure here, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, you know, objectively that this is what's going, you know. But I think that may be more of an, of an ethnic practice and kind of a cultural practice than a religious practice. So I, I don't know necessarily if... And, and then again, genital mutilation. These are things that are practiced throughout the Islamic world in Africa. You know, and this has been going on for a long time. But um, I, I think we have to be careful to draw that line between, you know, ethnic and cultural practices or the reinforced beliefs and practices of Islam. So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know necessarily if they go hand in hand. Okay, so, but again, along that lines, where do we draw the line then between what is a human rights abuse and what is an ethnic practice? Because you have honor killings that go on in some very radical sects of Muslim. So, you know, where do we say that's a human rights, ab- rights abuse? That's it doesn't true. matter and what religion or what ethnicity you are, you're not allowed to do it. Oh, no, no, of course, yeah. And, um, and, I, and do I believe general mutilation in any context is a human rights violation? Yes, you know, like, <laughs> absolutely. Like, you know, there, there's no justifiable excuse for that. You know, it's it's not medically granted it, it, it's completely you know there's no context behind it that would give it the justification for whatever happening so i completely agree with you on that point yeah for sure it's just it's just a very it's just a very difficult line to draw and it's the line a lot of politicians don't want to draw so right now you have a lot of people saying we're not talking about it you know what i mean like we're not going to address that when trump proposed that travel ban people were just like this is blatantly racist and we're very up in arms because it was against people of muslim origin because of 9 11 do you know what i mean that was the basis for deriving that. And so, is that racist? 
is the travel ban racist? Just as an example of a oh, policy okay, okay. against a specific um, group because of past atrocities. Yeah, I mean, once again, I think, you know, drawing that line comes into play here. Do I think that the Trump administration and his policies are objectively de jure racism? No, you know, they're not. Scholars have examined them and have said there's no implicit racial bias. You know, there's no implicit discrimination that's going on here. There's simply matters that are dealt with national security to an extreme level. So, I mean, as far as that goes, is it racist? No. You know, does it help those populations? Does it help them? Does it protect them? Anything? Not necessarily. Those are purely in the interest of national security, and, and other nations have exercised that as well. Against Americans. Oh, yeah. Say, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the security measures against the Islamic world are, they're kind of pressed, you know, in the media. They say, oh, look at this, look at this, look what's going on, look at, you know, oh, but at the same time, you know, we see similar security measures for other groups amongst other nations. So it's it's really not, it really shouldn't be defined as something so narrow and so rigid. You know, when there are other examples of, you know, lucrative examples of this going on, you know, in different contexts throughout the world. Absolutely. And, oh, sorry. Another point to be made, though, and something that I made a little bit earlier is, when, again, when we're talking about this refugee crisis, how do we deal with when many of these people, such as, Egypt could be an example, or in other countries in the Middle East, where there are significant minorities or majorities in the country that believe, for example, that people who leave the faith should be killed, or that they want Sharia law to be the law of the land. But how, not simply, obviously, you know, a very, very, very slim minority of people are going to be directly involved in terrorism, but how do we deal with when we're dealing with bringing in refugees who have what we consider in the West radical beliefs? Um, I mean, I definitely understand that. I think, you know, with your mention of, of Egypt and, you know, these nations that incorporate Sharia law, you know, to their principles and, you know, to their potential constitutional law, you know, whatever it may be, I think this is a prime example of why religion and government shouldn't mix. And, and that's kind of an observable example, especially with what's going on right now. You know, as you mentioned, the Sharia law being implemented in nations all over the Middle East, all over Africa, these have certainly been harmful principles that have taken, I mean, taken lives, you know, and, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a serious issue. Um, but as far as these, these refugees coming into the European Union, for example, say from, what was it, Egypt or, you know, wherever sure. it may be, I think to ensure the safety or at least to, to promote the safety of the people living within that nation and of the refugees themselves, I think information is, is the most powerful weapon we have now. You know, if you're going to be accepting refugees, have a logging system. These are, these are, um, practices that we've seen nations use for decades and, and they've worked out you know pretty soundly so if we can monitor people if we can kind of have, have for the lack of a better word kind of a logging system as we do with you know legal immigrants that come into the united states you know we have their names we have their information and having that kind of subsequent information gives us a sense of security also within the you know the context of national security that way we, we can also kind of come up with a better way to, with a lack of a better word once again, vet these radical, potentially radical refugees coming into these nations. So, I mean, it's not a perfect solution. And once again, it has to be in cooperation with many other, you know, many, many, many other actions that are taken by these governments. But I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think another solution, too, is obviously for people who are Muslim to be encouraging reform. There have been imams, such as Imam Tawidi, who have spoken out vehemently against radical Islam, whether that be in the Middle East or in the West. And in the case of Imam Tawidi, he actively speaks out against this, and he openly encourages these kind of Western values that we have of, of tolerance, respecting other people's religious beliefs, kindness, things like this, And I, as I'm sure that there are many Muslims who do as well. And I think 
when we have people like him who are actively speaking out against this within their own communities, that's going to do a lot of help as well. Because obviously we, we want to make sure, like you said, with the logging system, that the that we make sure that people who are you know are coming in, it's going to be safe for the country, for lack of a better term. But also, if we have reform within Islam in terms of where we see these radical beliefs go down, that's great as well. And again, I, I really don't have any vendetta against Islam at all. It's, it, I think it really comes down to interpretation. People can – if people interpret it in a way that is going to be beneficial for society, then then, then who cares? You know, I may, I may have my own personal theological disagreements, but this is America. People are allowed to hold their own religious sentiments, so – and you know what, when you were talking earlier about how it is, there is no perfect solution and any solution would take, you know, a very, very long time yeah. to unweave and, and discuss. That's absolutely correct. So it's all well and good to say, I don't appreciate this or I don't believe in this. But at the same time, you know, what are you supposed to do? You are dealing with a lot of people in Europe or Muslims and refugees of all sorts. So it is a very complicated solution, which affects a lot of lives. But also something that Will, you just said, is important too. It's it's all about perception. I'm studying the Iranian Revolution right now, which I greatly enjoy. And one of the things that was brought up was the embrace of the radical Muslim ideology by such a large majority of people was because the perception at the time was we need to get rid of the United States from the Middle East. We don't like the United States. We hate them. And that perception of we are in danger caused the embrace of this radical ideology. And on some level, it is the perception nowadays of this is a problem. Do you know what I mean? The United States is a problem. This idea is a problem, and we need to get rid Absolutely, of it. Absolutely, but, but this... Um, but these sentiments don't come without a background or a context. Um, uh, well, Western intervention has, you know, Western intervention, European intervention, um, even British occupation, you know, have played major, major roles in the political formation of these governments. You know, in arguably they're probably the reason we have established theocracies in the Middle East because of the political instability, which is, you know, allowed religion to fill this kind of black hole that's been kind of negated by the powers that have occupied, you know, these regions or have exuded control over them. Yes. So I think in terms of Western intervention, once again, this is a matter of perspective and I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be blunt here, but I mean, you know, from the perspective of people living in Middle Eastern countries that have kind of been combat zones for the past couple of decades, you can easily observe bombs, you know, like warfare, I mean, patrols of, of United States soldiers, you know, along with other, you know, other nations, which has changed dynamically, you know, the, the, the political scene, you know what I mean? This is, it, it's been an undeniable part of the formation of these political problems. I don't think that Western intervention has been a part of the positive past for the Middle East, and I don't think it's going to be part of the positive future. I don't think that this will be able to go on to the same extent that it has, and then for us to claim that there are these fundamentalist principles against us while also not acknowledging that we have taken part in these events, that we have subsequent, you know, responsibility for what is going on. That, that is a fair point, and obviously, you know, with Western intervention in these populations, there's obviously going to be augmented anti-West sentiments. But I think at the same time saying that Western intervention is the cause of theocracies. I'm studying AP World History right now, and there have been Muslim theocracies that have existed for over thousands of years they've existed. Um, and so you have different caliphates and things like that. So if you could just clarify a little, a little bit what you mean by how the, the West kind of causes theocracies, because obviously they've I mean, existed. Um, I'm not saying that Western intervention is the prime um, is the prime causation 
you know, behind... It's one of them. I mean, I'm, yes, but I'm not saying it's the sole cause of it. You know, there are trade wars, there are, you know, fundamentalist, religious-based, principled wars that have been fought, you know, but, but yes, this is one of them. And, West, you know, when I say Western intervention, I don't mean specifically the United States. I mean, I'm talking about a broad historical range of nations that have come into these areas, that have exuded control over them, that have occupied them, fill in the blank. You know, th- this has been going on for a long time. And, um, you know, with that being said, there have been, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too off topic here, but especially in terms of the United States in their bombing campaigns, you can observe the kind of the political instability. Um, you know, when you look back at countless, countless civilians, I mean, have been bombed, you know, as collateral damage, have been completely decimated cities, towns. I mean, economic activity of entire regions has been seized, you know, and, and that has political implications. I think that's something to something very important to remember. Some of the biggest cities in Iran, some of the, you know, the, lar- the most functional cities in Afghanistan have been torn apart, you know, as a result of United States intervention. And then you look even farther back, the structures of power that existed even in Palestine, Israel, whatever you want, you know, whatever you want to call it, not to get too, you know, into that. <laughs> but they have been, for the most part, controlled and under the subject of Britain. So you look back at that and how are those sentiments applied to the people, you know, of those countries? Obviously, there's going to be an anti-Western sentiment to some extent. And then again, I don't want to generalize anything. You know, I don't have a figure on this, but um, I'm sure that, you know, most of the, you know, Muslim population living in these areas don't necessarily have anti-Western bias, but I do think it does come into play when, you know, when international issues and, you know, things of the sort kind of come up. Well, to kind of counter that a little bit, I mean, again, I was doing some research from the Pew Research Center and, and looking at different statistics within these Muslim population. There seems to be, and I don't have the exact statistic, but it, there seems to be within uh, a lot of these, in the, specifically within in the Middle East, in these populations, a very, very negative view towards the, the West. So, for example, about about I think it's something along the lines of 68% of, not 68, something in the 60% range of Muslims in some of these countries like view the West as selfish and then greedy. It's like 50%. There's all these different characteristics. Well, they have this very negative perception. Well, the other thing is, I, well, it's not unheard of for Western nations to occupy developing nations. Do you know what I mean? Unfortunately, we just seem to have made a series of mistakes in the Middle East, which, you know, is that bad? Yes. But at the same time, that does not mean that the um, that the United States has to excuse the conduct of some of these Middle Eastern nations. I no, mean, they're no, chanting death to America, burning American flags on the floor of the Iranian parliament. So it's not something that we should be accepting. We took blame. We have taken responsibility for it. Do you know what I mean? We took responsibility a long time ago and have recognized our faults. But it's also how do we deal with this very, very negative attitude towards us? I think in terms of the negative attitude towards us, once again, this is about perception, you know, so as far as it relates to, as, as you mentioned, you know, them burning, you know, the American flag on the floor of the Iranian parliament, you know, these are deep, deep rooted political principles that have been installed in these, you know, in these nations and these legislatures even for a long time. And even though the United States is, you know, they may have acknowledged and taken responsibility and, you know, raised their hand and go, yeah, that was us. I mean, what ample action have we taken to restore the political stability of the Middle East? We haven't done anything. I mean, and, and that's, and I'm not but saying... But you just said and that I'm we not shouldn't saying, be intervening anymore. No, 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 no. But I, but I mean, you have to take into context here what a system of power looks like. And when it withdraws, such as the United States did, you need to have ample action to ensure that a power vacuum will not occur. Because that is what happened. And we amply knew that some... There was no power vacuum. We installed a new shop. We installed a new shop. Yeah. 
So we installed a new Shah, and then shortly after, the system of power was dynamically rerouted. The Middle East is by that nation. The Middle East is not the same that we left it. The Middle East is not the same as we left it. No, because they changed it. They changed their own country. Exactly. Exactly. So, so when we make changes that we know are not going to be compatible with the nation, and we uh, we completely understand that that system of power will not last, then we do overtly understand that we are leaving a power vacuum there. That that has been acknowledged. That has been analyzed. We do understand that there is a power vacuum. That there is. I mean, I mean, look, look at look at the current. I mean, political layout of you know, of the region. Resulting from these power vacuums have been these powerful terrorist groups, which act as these mega conglomerates that almost have a political, you know, that have, I mean, they form almost independent nations. I mean, you look at ISIS, you know, the Islamic State of Iraq in in the Levant. I mean, they have occupied territory. They have a system of government. They have police. They have everything. These are systems of power that we did not establish when we left. The only thing that could have been resulted, it could have only resulted, excuse me, from a dynamic black hole of, of power. And, and, and that's something that we've observed not only in the Middle East at that time, but also throughout history as well. That's something that we have seen and we can we can look back at it and we can draw a specific timeline of what that looks like as well. Very good. Well, Mr. Adams, thank you very much. Today we talked at great length about political correctness as well as the impact of Islam in modern politics and some of the history surrounding the theocracies in the Middle East. Charles Adams, thank you very much for joining us today. Your contribution was valuable. And and just for the audience, you are a little bit of a leftist, correct? Who told you that? <laughs> thank you very much for your contributions. I'm Sophie. I'm Will. And this is state-sponsored programming. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of state-sponsored programming. We're on most podcasting platforms, so wherever you are, make sure to like, follow, and give us five stars if you enjoyed listening. You can also follow us on Twitter at SS underscore programming for all updates and giveaways. This is State Sponsored Programming, signing off.